I'm Collier Landry. And I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder. And today we are talking to probably an individual who I would say is my personal hero. He's someone who is very near and dear to my heart for a lot of reasons. Uh, but most importantly, because when nobody believed me that my mother was dead, this gentleman did. As of two days ago, a gentleman by the name of Lester Eubanks, who has been on the run for 47 years since fleeing prison, is now loose in Los Angeles, California. Probably literally down the street. I wonder if he's working at a Starbucks that I went to this morning. <laughs> right? Makes you wonder. So without any further ado, I would like to welcome to Moving Past Murder, David Messmore. Thank you for joining us. I realize that it's 1030 your time, so you're up and awake, but it's uh, we're three hours behind. All of us are up early. Yes. We're, we're worm getters here at Moving Past Murder, as That's I like right. to say. Well, Dave, we have a bunch of things that we can talk about. There's a couple of things that we've been following here. Obviously, my story and how you intersect with that and mm-hmm. the work that we were able to do to bring justice to my father. Then you and I have briefly touched upon this recent and very tragic case, the murder of Melinda Davis from Shelby, Ohio. But more importantly than all of that, we have a case that has come full circle, would you say? Yes? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that is the case of Lester Eubanks. Now, Dave, I remember very specifically when I came back and we were doing a murder in Mansfield, in Mansfield at the Renaissance Theater, and you and I, I think we went and played golf, and we were sitting at your house, and you started telling me this story that you had never told about Lester. So why don't you give us a little background? Because if I'm not mistaken, you are the original arresting officer in this case. No, not exactly. I, uh, I I grew up on North Mulberry Street down in Mansfield, and uh, it was uh, my parents had a small grocery store. She would uh, come in, the, the victim in this case, with her mother and her sister. She was just a little girl at the time because that was in the late 50s. Then we bought a bigger store, so I didn't see a lot of them after that. In 1965, I believe it was, uh, Apparently, Lester Eubanks was living not far from that area where she lived, which is only about two blocks from our grocery store. And he kind of sneaked up on her at night when she was going down the street to the laundromat, assaulted her, uh, raped her, and uh, shot her. Um, This is a little 14-year-old girl. And then he uh, came back when he thought he heard more sounds coming out of her her voice and her body and uh, used a brick to finish uh, killing her. Uh, fortunately, the police department, the detectives at the time did an excellent job. They followed up and found him and uh, brought him in and then he confessed and had a, a complete confession. He was sentenced uh, shortly after that to the uh, Ohio Penitentiary for the death penalty, which would be the electric chair in our, in our state. At that point, less than a year later, the death penalty in, in Ohio was commuted to just life imprisonment uh, due to a Supreme Court decision. He was, uh, I guess at that point, according to the, to the penitentiary system, uh, he became somewhat of a model inmate. And uh, they thought 
he's such a great guy that the following year, he was allowed to take a shopping trip in downtown Columbus, Ohio, uh, unaccompanied. And uh, what? since he, he was an honor inmate, uh, which is maybe the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Yeah, agreed. So at that point, um, when he went down downtown shopping, uh, he never came back. Uh, it was just gone. And they started looking for him, and of course they couldn't find him. Um, they put the uh, information out that he was an escapee at one time, and then apparently deleted it because after I got into uh, being in charge of the detective bureau, um, I came uh, came across his case because uh, I was interested in it and I, I was familiar with it. I reread it and uh, checked the uh, computer system for National Crime Information Center and he wasn't in there. Hmm. So I uh, called the penitentiary system and had him reinstalled uh, as an escapee. And uh, sometime after that, um, I called uh, America's Most Wanted and uh, had his, his whole case submitted to them. And uh, there were a lot of calls that came in uh, about uh, his whereabouts and they might have seen him, they might have known him, but nothing substantial ever happened. And uh, at that point then uh, in 94, I retired. And shortly after that, maybe a couple of years, um, I got a call from uh, a writer in uh, Connecticut and she said, I'm doing a, a, a series of stories about uh, men who kill and rape. And uh, she said, I'd like to talk to you about this one. So I, I, uh, I said, well, fine. And she came to town and I took her to where the, the actual incident occurred. And we talked about uh, uh, the background of, of Lester Eubanks and the background of Mary Ellen Diener. And then she said, uh, what, where is he? And I said, well, he's at large. I said, apparently the uh, prison system thought it was okay to let him go take a walk. And she said, okay. So she went back to her hotel and uh, called me later that day. And she said, why would you tell me that he is at large when I talked to the superintendent of prisons and he said, oh no, he's incarcerated. Huh. And I said, well, I said, well, why don't you have him tell you what prison and that you'd like to talk to him? And she said, well, I certainly will. And she called back about two hours later and said, he's not in prison. I said, yeah, I know. So at that point, um, she wrote the story and, and put it in with a series of stories in her book. And after that, um, I, I still was interested in, in uh, what was going on with it. I checked with the police department and had it reinstalled again into the computer system as an escapee runaway. And uh, then uh, at another point, the uh, U.S. Marshals started calling me and talked about it. And when they got interested in it is when uh, some activity really happened and they started tracking him down. They have a a much better resource than uh, a little police department like ours. And and they uh, they tracked him down and, and uh, 
wasn't very long ago that uh, they were right behind him in LA. Uh, just missed him about an hour behind him because he got word that somebody was looking for him and, and took off. So that at that point, um, they called me uh, about a week, two weeks ago and U.S. Marshals and then uh, the attorney for America's Most Wanted and inquired about the situation and, and what I thought and everything. And the news journal here interviewed me about it. And uh, they, they were, I was very happy to see them put it back on because uh, it had been 20 years since it was on, on the first few editions of America's Most Wanted. Yeah, and you messaged me on Facebook and you said, hey, I'm going to be back on America's Most Wanted. So you might want to check that out. <laughs> right. Well, it, yeah, they had a, a film clip they were going to show, but um, it's like anything else. They get a lot of information late in the, in the week. and they, they wanted to add that into the show, which was appropriate uh, about some other cases they were working on. So uh, I'm hoping, I haven't heard anything, but I'm hoping that uh, their uh, show last night uh, will do some good and, and somebody somewhere will say, hey, I, I know who that guy is. And I know where he is. Yeah, it's, uh, I was telling, I live in Santa Monica. I'm about a mile from the ocean. And I was telling Brenda, you know, I said, you know, she said, how's he hide in plain sight? And I said, well, don't you remember who they pulled out of Santa Monica a few years ago? Whitey Bulger <laughs> yeah, was here, yeah. what, for 30 years or something? Yeah, Just, long, long time. Yeah. Just living by the ocean. Just living in an apartment in Santa Monica. And, you know, he lived here because he, he, why he wanted to move here is because he wanted to get under rent control. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, Lord. He probably had like a, you know, I think he was like a couple blocks from the beach and he was probably paying 500 bucks a month or something. Now that's like living 4,500. 4, living his best life. Oh, boy. Amazing. Um, so Dave, I remember this. You know, I remember, like I said, when we were discussing around the time that we were screening a murder in Mansfield in Mansfield. And mm -hmm. I think we were up at the Cleveland international film festival and those, uh, and those places. And, and, um, you were telling me about this and I was staggered. I want to touch upon something that you said that I thought was very interesting. You talked about him, you know, his quote model prisoner status, right. And right. how that somehow duped, the uh, Department of Corrections in Ohio to let him out to do a little, little holiday shopping. Right. Yeah. This rings a very <laughs> familiar tone with this whole model prisoner thing, and I think we both know someone who has been deemed a quote model prisoner who is still incarcerated. Right. right. Uh, do you see a lot of similarities? I mean, obviously, um, smashing this girl's skull in is is sort of a parallel, but do you see? I mean, I realize that you're not necessarily a criminologist, but you, you've done the work, <laughs> I think, in, over the years to sort of tell what kind of criminals are criminals and what their patterns of behavior are. Do you, do you see a, some similarities here between a gentleman like this and my father? Oh, yeah, there's, there's a criminal intent, criminal conduct, and <clears throat> if you look at uh, both of those, there are some similarities. In, in Lester's case, um, those uh, problems with his mind uh, started when he was pretty young. And uh, today, uh, he's 
77 years old and it hasn't changed you, you don't you don't change somebody like that even with with intense uh, therapy um, he's always going to have that underlying um, intent and desire to in this his case overpower and rape uh, women and, and there are many books uh, written on that um, the, the one the one uh, writer that was here had an extensive review in the doctors uh, of, of uh, a number of of cases of men who rape and then and in this case kill uh, not all of them uh, kill but um, if if they encounter too much resistance then the victim uh, is very likely to be hurt or even killed and, and I think you can see that uh, deep in in uh, Lester uh, although you know God only knows how many other women have been raped or even assaulted or even killed at the, at the most. But, uh, so you, so do you feel that this was, you, you don't necessarily subscribe to the philosophy that this was a one-off incident. You think that perhaps in his, how long has he been free? 47 years? Yeah. 47 years. Right. Goodness. Uh, do you think that there has been other criminal activity that he has decided to partake in? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He would, he came to Mansfield uh, the year we both graduated, and I didn't know him because there were so many um, kids in that school. But he was under indictment from uh, one or two other cities and had a record of, of uh, physical assaults. I think one was a rape. Um, so that, that tendency doesn't go away just because you're locked up. Yeah, so he's 77. That's the same age as my father, I believe. Yeah, we're all three the same age. Well, I wasn't going to age you. <laughs> you can, that's not a problem. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, Dave is a spry young gentleman in his late 50s. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'd like to think that. Oh, you're doing all right. I played golf with you. Yeah. You put me to yeah. shame. Not that that's yeah. a difficult no. feat, but... No. You know. We almost had a hole. We almost had a hole in one. Oh, that's right. Dave almost. Oh my goodness, that's yeah. right. And I still have the photos. Where, where <laughs> we played? We played Deer Ridge, right? Deer Ridge, right. Mm -hmm. I grew up playing a different course that I actually worked at called Twin Lakes, which is in Ontario. But right. we went to Deer Ridge. Oh and yeah. Dave hit this, and we were looking for his <laughs> ball. And then, like, wait, hold on, is that your ball? What was it? Like a foot from the cup? Maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe less than I that. Think I think it was maybe six. I mean, it like, I mean, <laughs> wow. I've got the picture. Yeah. I'll throw it up on the um, on the video yeah. version of this of this <laughs> podcast. But yes, Dave standing. Right. We said it to Sue, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, oh, there we go." Like, awesome. Oh, it was crazy. Did it lip out though? That I well, it was it was close. I don't know. Uh, it was pretty. It was pretty epic though. Yeah, that is that's for sure. So Dave is a good golfer. That's the whole thing. Oh, no. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. I just hope. You know, definitely I'm thinking too, this guy has reoffended probably multiple times out there. And the funny thing is, it's like, how has he not been caught? And if he has been in Los Angeles, um, you know, I wonder like what rapes and murders and attacks out there that he could possibly be, you know, be linked to if there's anything that's been unsolved. Um I'm wondering oh, yes. if they can track him 
by those movements and those assaults. Um, and what part of L.A. Do you, are they thinking that he's in? Well, he's he's no, they're, they're saying Gardena, which okay. is not far from Santa Monica. I think El Segundo, which is by the Los Angeles International Airport. But Dave, you go ahead and sorry. Yeah. What do you think, Dave? Well, his in his case, um, if they have DNA uh, from the rapes, uh, it, it's difficult to compare it because there's nothing in the system that would indicate that that's uh, Lester. Uh, today, uh, we take a, a DNA swab uh, from everybody being incarcerated. And DNA was uh, is a great way to track somebody and, and find out who the, who the victim and the, who the offender is. Um, I had our first DNA case in Mansfield when I had a, a rapist. Uh, we the detectives arrested him, and we had uh, I think three victims. And I said, "Well, to our lab director, I said, what do you know about DNA?" And he said, "Well, it's the FBI is is really promoting that, and he says uh, started in England, and it's an excellent way to track somebody, and it, it narrows it down to the exact person." I said, "Well, why don't you try sending the samples?" Um, to Monaco uh, and, and see what we can do with that. If, if that uh, works, then, then we, have, we wouldn't have to go to trial. And so they, uh, and actually, I might add that we, we also had a lineup with him and I think four other guys that were of similar size. And each one of those women identified him as being the, the rapist. So uh, about 30 days later, uh, we got a result back from the FBI, and they said uh, the same guy had raped all three women, but it's not him. And I said, well, that has to be a mistake. I said, it's a callback. They ran it again. They said, nope, that's exactly what the results were. So I, I just, um, we were just kind of dumbfounded. So I went to the prosecutor's office and I said, we got this guy locked up. You're going to have to release him and let him go. Um, they said, oh, no, you got a really good case here. I said, no. I said, are you familiar with DNA? They said, well, not really. So I told him results, had him contact the FBI. And uh, it took another three days to get him released. And, of course, he got out and promptly sued us which I thought was, of course, what are you going to do? And uh, the city paid him some, some amount of money. I don't know what it was, but I thought, well, you know, I, I was really happy with that uh, because you don't want to see somebody incarcerated that doesn't deserve to be. Right. And, and in this case, yeah, it was, it was, it was actually the, the best thing that could have happened is to release him. Uh, so, has anyone thought of maybe going to one of his family members and getting their DNA sample? To- well, that would narrow it down. Yeah, yeah, that would narrow it down. And and I don't know that the, the marshals haven't done that. They may have. Uh, they don't. They don't tell everybody what they're doing, obviously, because of uh, the right. confidentiality. But but that that is a good good way to do it, and and a good possibility. Uh, and and maybe they're doing that right now. Uh, that would wouldn't tie him to some of those 
uh, crimes that are committed out there. Interesting. Uh, so I so I guess what comes to mind. It's obviously been a very. I would say that police work is a very arduous process to begin with, and I have mm. firsthand experience of that over thirty years ago. <laughs> However, yes. nowadays it seems to me like not only are you in competition with pursuing the criminal and getting justice for the victims and and the communities that are involved in these types of cases or that are impacted by these types of violence, right? Mm-hmm. But now you're you're facing a whole other uh sort of set of just, uh, judge and jury being the general public and the news media. And I I shudder to think what would happen nowadays with my father and and you know you it's interesting to see how attorneys exploit loopholes in the system, but it seems to me that obtaining justice for types of crimes these days becomes a lot more of a difficult process because you're not only fighting uh against the actual criminals and and their defense teams but also the public at large and the the you know the sort of uh the public opinion and the news media slant that is given to a lot of these criminals and i understand that this country is built on laws we are you know innocent until proven guilty which is a wonderful thing in our democratic process however sometimes it works against the system well it, it's very disappointing to to see if you've been in law enforcement for a long period of time um what's happening in our big cities is uh is very distressing um new york city uh, chicago uh, minneapolis it's just it's very very disconcerting and i feel bad for the people that live in those areas um, to end uh, qualified immunity for police uh, in a lot of places, uh, to reduce the numbers, uh, that that does not work, and it, it's it's a, a a problem that's going to come back and haunt them for some period of time before they can resurrect that uh, that law enforcement standing um, in smaller areas like our area in Ohio. Uh, that that's not a problem. Uh, they're not going to give up uh, their police departments, and they're not going to give up their the immunity that uh, you, you enjoy as a policeman. Because uh, unless you, if you obviously know that that a policeman has done something wrong, and has has gone out of his way to to do something bad to somebody that doesn't deserve it, then there's retribution for that. But uh, to, it goes uh, a lot more swiftly in a smaller town. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and and uh, it's it's sad. Uh, I I just uh, I feel bad for my my children and my grandchildren in, in the future. Uh, Columbus is another one that uh, is not doing well under that regime. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's a very f- delicate line which we are towing in this country. In my opinion, I mean, look. I tell my story and I say, you know, when those two uniformed officers came on December 31st, 1989 and interviewed me, it was a missing persons case. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until you just, by the grace of God, 
happenstance, whatever we want to call it, the universe happened to get that, see that missing persons case and say, and what did you say when you saw that? Well, it it was, um, it was confusing. Uh, It didn't make sense. And I think, you know, even your dad wouldn't, uh, wouldn't cooperate obviously. But um, when I talked to you and I talked to uh, friends of your family and friends of your mother, uh, they were, they were adamant about not leaving town without you. And of course, after I looked at it, um, I saw you had a, a close relationship with your mom um, and she wasn't going to go out of town and not tell you. Uh, so it, it, uh, it triggered a lot of uh, questions in my mind. And, and when I came back that night, uh, knocked on the door and your dad's attorney met me, had a sign on the door and said, uh, nobody's allowed to talk to the police uh, in this house. And that was after I talked to your grandmother talk to you. So hey, Charlie told me, he said that uh, he just doesn't have anything more to say. And I said, well, Charlie, well, there's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing here that, you know, I just want to ask him a couple questions and see if I can locate her. And he said, no, nope, not going to happen. So that uh, that's called a tip off. And, and you, you've got to, you've got to be concerned if you're an investigator to, to delve deeply into that, that case. So when, let a, when a suspect or even their representative counsel becomes prevaricative, that's a good sign that something's. Oh wrong. yeah, oh yes, oh yes, yeah. And I think they teach you that in interview classes that uh, you know <laughs> somebody wants to be evasive and not forthcoming. Um, you need to be on alert. So I thought it was very interesting that somehow you guys still connected, even though. Um, Collier's dad would not let anyone in the house speak to you. Right. So how did it transpire with Collier being able to contact you? Well, I uh, actually went to his school and got permission to talk to him. And, you know, he, he's, he's pretty, uh, pretty accurate about everything he tells. And, and he was, he was uh, right on the money. He knew what was going on and he suspected the worst. And, and then the, uh, it finally uh, culminated in, in his dad telling him he'd like to take him to Florida. And, uh, and I, so I went to the uh, children's services and I said, look, if, if he takes him to Florida, he won't come back. And they said, Oh, let's go get him. So they got him out of the household and, uh, and kind of, and uh, segregated him from the rest of the society so that we could we could continue working on the case and uh, keep him safe. Yeah, that is really scary when you think, you know, oh my God, this dad wants to take this kid to Florida and you know it's because he knows this kid is going to talk and yeah. he's going to be his undoing. So you knew he wasn't safe. You knew what his dad had planned to do and that's really scary. You know, you're thinking, oh, this, this man is going to take a 12-year-old child and, you know, basically g- gone girl him. Uh, yeah. In the midst of the investigation and his mother being gone, um, I didn't see any concern on his part that, uh, you know, he was going to be looking for her. 
he just wanted to eliminate maybe he's not he wasn't real sure what Collier would say I think he knew that Collier knew something yeah. but uh he wanted to eliminate that risk well I mean and and obviously I was there with him it was it was over the you know course of you know several weeks that I think he started putting two and two together because as you know my father is a narcissist and a sociopath. And so nobody's, you know, I think you say in the documentary, you say, oh, these dumb police right. aren't going to figure this out. They're not mm-hmm. going to figure this one out. There's a recent case that's going on in Richland County right at the moment, and that's of the case of Melinda K. Davis. Now, I know that there's not a lot of details that are released. I know that U.S. Marshals are working, I believe, with the FBI as well and the Manson right. Police Department, Richland County right. Prosecutor's well, Office. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, now the Sheriff's Office, and, and he has a background. Uh, they've delved into it and uh, I got a lot of information from him about his his violence and um, I think her last statement to a friend of hers was uh, I'm going to see him and you know I may not come back which really is what really draw drew my attention to the case not only because it's in you know where I grew up in my hometown and, and affects my community, of course. But also that statement of her saying that it's just like my mother told me about a month before she was killed, which I told mm-hmm. you. I said, yeah. my, you know, my mother saying, if something happens to me or I leave you, your father either had me killed or killed me. Right. And I think that the telephone call she made to uh, Marge, oh, Marge that night, right. That, well, they're coming in the driveway now, and and he's brought his mother with him, uh, so he he can't kill me tonight. And of course, that was prophetic because uh, he did that night. Wow. Yeah, it's uh. That's really crazy to think, she, you know, that she thought that she was safe at least for that night, and not only was she not safe, but he killed her with one of her children in the room. Yeah. That is so brazen. Well, it was just a door or two away, and and the baby was there. Yeah, um, three year old. But right. But you're right. You know, after I went down to um, to see her after that, uh, we found the body. The little girl uh, demonstrated to me what what uh, Doctor Boyle did, and uh, hit mommy over the head, and then wrapped her up in a, a sheet like a snowman. Wow. Okay, and of course, we're all thankful because uh, Collier didn't react when uh, his dad came to the door and looked in on him. He wanted to see if he was awake, if he'd heard anything, saw anything, and that would have been the end of Collier. Yep, they would have both been missing and buried in the Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yep. And I knew it right there, as I say in the TED Talk, and, you know, I counted the footsteps down the hallway and... And the fact that the three-year-old could, you know, tell the story of exactly what happened and, mm-hmm. you know, and he didn't think about her being able to recount it. And look at these two kids. They were like, yep, this is what happened. Yeah, she couldn't testify because of her age, but um, she would have been a good a good candidate for a, for a witness. Um, not as good as Collier, but she'd have had something to say that was pretty dramatic, I think. Right, just the... F- the facts of what she saw and, and how she interpreted it. Um, that's amazing. And that just told the story right there. And I would think any jury listening to her would be like, holy crap. Oh, yes. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's amazing. Kids are amazing and they tell yeah. it like it is. They just, you know, this is what happened and this is what yeah. I heard. And, um, you know, they they don't sugarcoat it. They just tell you. No, no, they tell you the truth. And that's that's uh, that's a nice attribute. Yes, absolutely. So kudos to them because you know, they solved a murder. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that you guys were talking back and forth you know, when he was at school, um, and he was able to give you information like, Hey, I found these pictures and it looks like there's a house. You might want to check and see if, you know, dad bought another house somewhere because this could be where she's at. Yep. That that was very helpful. And, uh, of course I got the, uh, the Mill Creek Township police department, uh, was a pretty good department up there, uh, along the lake and they were a big help. And, um, they got, uh, I got the search warrant done at, uh, Collier's home, uh, which I really didn't expect to find much. Uh, and I didn't. And then I had another search warrant that I had identical search warrant I'd sent to Pennsylvania and, uh, they incorporated that into their format. And, uh, they had a, a, a judge there that was a former prosecutor and he signed the, the warrant. So. When we got there, it was, uh, you know, I, it was a difficult situation because I, I couldn't find uh, recent damage to the floors or anywhere where the, the body might be kept. And uh, when we went downstairs to the basement, um, it was December, and I just painted the basement floor, and it was very strong and uh, real thick paint. They put up uh, uh, shelving made out of uh, two by fours and four by eight sheets of, of uh, paneling, I guess pressed wood. But uh, at any rate, we were looking all over the floor and I thought, oh my God, we, we'll never find this uh, opening where, where it might've taken place. Uh, but I'm still obsessed with the fact that it probably uh, was a, that there was a small opening somewhere. Uh, it's hard to tell how, how big a one he had made, but. Uh, one of the uh, crime lab people was crawling alongside the wall and he said, look, there's some kind of soft concrete. Looks like it was pretty fresh. And we took a sledgehammer and we knocked down the middle of uh, one of the shelvings. The indoor-outdoor carpet again I'd been looking for was, was apparent. We pulled that up and you could see a depression in the concrete, which had never truly hardened up. It was uh, still relatively soft. And, and then when we dug through that, we could find the the indoor, well, not only the carpeting, but then the uh, plastic cart that uh, he had wrapped Noreen in. And uh, that was that was pretty obvious. So it was only 100 yards from Lake Erie, so there, there was uh, some water seepage uh, down about three, four feet. It took a, a period of time to, to excavate everything, and then we got uh, her body out. Wow. Oh. That's amazing. Oh. Do you remember our first conversation after you discovered the body? Yeah, I came down. Uh, in particular, I wanted to talk to you alone and and tell you. Uh, I didn't want anybody else to tell you. Um, and and you you were not shocked, but of course felt terrible. Um, and and you talked to me like a twenty five year old. Mm-hmm. You were just you, you you kind of knew. Uh, I, that that was 
going to be uh, the result. And uh, we, we had a nice little conversation and I, I, I told you how bad I felt and I knew you felt bad and, and uh, but you held up well. Thanks. I hopefully I still try to do that. <laughs> yeah, I know it's not easy. No, it's it's not. It's it's why we have the name of the podcast, "Moving Past Murder." Uh, exactly. I want to just touch upon something again. You know, with the recent case of Melinda K. Davis, and when we were discussing sociopathy, narcissism, which are obviously hand in hand, psychopathy. This gentleman who was accused, uh, John Henry Mack Jr., had apparently bragged to, was it another inmate that he was incarcerated with, or was it a U.S. Marshal that they wouldn't find the body? I, I think he told that to an inmate, um, and of course, that really uh, uh, got their desire of going to find the body, and, and they did, which I thought was a great job. And, you know, as I discussed in the episode last week, what? What, go, what do you think goes through these people's minds? You know, for example, my father. Okay, well, my wife has gone missing. Oh, I don't know anything about it. But I'll just bury her in my house because nobody will think to look there. Yeah. I mean, if I'm a criminal and I'm doing something like that, I want that. <laughs> I want nothing part of that. And again, John Henry Mack had left the car. The car was found uh, uh, quarter of a mile from where he worked and it was a parking lot apparently according to the Columbus dispatch where they're in Galloway where people uh, that worked at this trucking plant parked all the time to avoid getting tickets yeah yeah what, what do you think goes through somebody's mind when they do that it's, it's are, are they just that blind I mean I understand there's a you know a very famous quote pride cometh before the fall yeah. uh, for sure well that and hide in plain sight in uh, plain sight comes comes to mind. I I don't know. You know, you talk about um, devious people that that have uh, uh, very good minds that they think they can outsmart everybody else, the public, the victims, the police, um, and that that really doesn't happen all the time. Um, I, I'm just uh, amazed at some of the uh, the stories you hear, and and uh, I had occasion to. Uh, we had a, a very difficult homicide, um, which we hadn't made any progress with in Mansfield. And, and uh, I, I started looking at uh, Henry Lee Lucas, uh, who was uh, maybe the most prolific serial killer in, in the United States. And I, I had been to a seminar on him in Nashville. And uh, he had originally uh, was from uh, Michigan and uh, kind of illiterate, but he was uh, an expert in, in um, interstates and, and uh, maps. So I, I started trying to check for him and, and look around and see if I could have somebody interview him about uh, our homicide because they weren't going to charge him with, with these additional homicides. And uh, I, I called Dallas and talked to um, the uh, Texas Ranger who was in charge of it. And he said, well, he's, he's sitting right here if you want to talk to him. I said, yeah, I'd like to. And so we had a long conversation. And he, he described everything that um, um, I was interested in. And, and he went through a, uh, he, he'd been 
to Mansfield and been by Mansfield many times on 71. And he said, he said, I might've done that. He said, it sounds like something I did, but he'd done so many, he couldn't remember them all. And uh, finally he said, uh, send me the uh, pictures and stuff or come down here and go over it with me. And he said, uh, by the way, he said, how far are you from Toledo? And I saw a couple hours and he said, well, I did one there. And I said, uh, you did. So he gave me the details and we went through it step by step. So I hung up and I called uh, uh, Toledo Homicide. And they said, uh, when did this happen? I said, oh, around this year. They said, we'll call you back. And they called back and they said, that's ours. That's exactly what happened. He said, we'll be on a plane this afternoon and then go down and clear this thing up, uh, which they did. Um, but, that, you know, it shows you the mind of a, of a serial killer. There aren't, there aren't a lot of, of true serial killers, but uh, there are people that kill two or three times. And, and uh, those are the people sometimes you don't suspect at all. And he was a pathological liar? As well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He had uh, alluded to uh, 650 homicides, but then they came back and said, well, he's only done 200. I thought, only? And then they, <laughs> they, there's a lot of different. They weren't going to execute him because they wanted to get as much information as they could. From him. Right. But with him being a liar, it was hard to know yeah. if anything was true. Right. And, they had to check each and every one. Yeah. And how many did they actually confirm, or do you know? Well, they were up to 50-some. Uh, I don't know where it went after that because I haven't I haven't kept up with it lately. But uh, there was a, an excellent uh, sheriff in Texas that uh, actually arrested him and found him in a chicken coop. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that's the kind of stuff they used to do. And uh, brought him back, and that's what started it all. He wasn't the one that also killed children, was it? Not as many children, no. It, it, he would uh, torture women and kill, kill them, mostly all, all women. Do you think a case like my father's would have ended the same way if it were our current state of... <laughs> I don't know. I I, I don't know. It, you know, it, it's, it's hard to say. It's been a lot of years, and... Uh, it depends on the person investigating it, whether uh, he's going to be tenacious enough to uh, to go after it. You can be dissuaded by a lot of different things. Um, prosecutor wasn't real real helpful uh, until I insisted that he send a judge, who is now Judge Alt, with me, uh, because I knew he was a good prosecutor and do the right thing. And and it worked out well. You know, that, that was fine. But... Um, Today, I, I I would imagine they they're more thorough than maybe even we were back then, uh, and they wouldn't uh, dismiss something like this as as just a you know a possible um, homicide. But more than likely, she just left. So I don't think that would happen today. Wow! Would you say in the current American justice system, you can buy your way out of jail? I don't understand that. You know, you, you should have to pay for whatever you've done. It worked for an awful lot of years before we got to this point. Uh, in law enforcement, you you try to use uh, 
the, the threat of incarceration, threat of arrest, uh, to uh, change somebody's attitude and 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 their demeanor, and uh, you know, frequently if they're minor minor indiscretions, you could you could warn somebody. Obviously, we didn't have time to arrest everybody for it. I guess way to, to counteract that was to actually tell people, you know, if this happens again, uh, I can guarantee you're going to jail and uh, you're going to have to pay a fine and maybe have incarceration. And a lot of people don't want to hear that. They say, well, that's enough. I don't want any more. I'm, I'm not going to do that again. But there are other people that um, are just oblivious to it and, and they have to be locked up. And, and that's what we're, we're kind of... Uh, losing track of the, uh, the people, the constant offenders, uh, the ones that, uh, that don't uh, adapt themselves well to incarceration and uh, change their attitude. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, my father's latest continuance of his stay in yeah. uh, the great state of Ohio would indicate that. You know, something I haven't really shared on the program, but it, my stalker has returned. And well. she actually, in an attempt to really get my attention, contacted my father really sent him messages yep and sent him emails and uh she sent those emails to me and in those emails he's still very angry he said that i uh, i don't know if he used the word bait and switch but that was his sort of thing he said oh i was gonna advocate right. for his release uh, that i had promised him that over the summer mm-hmm. and that i wasn't fooling anybody when i didn't advocate for his release and he's very angry and i and i'm toying with sending those emails off to the department of corrections but he's angry and when you and i sat down a couple years ago at the ohio reformatory which i will put into a full episode for our youtube channel for our listeners we discussed my father got released what will you be afraid of that's that's what concerned me yeah You'd be afraid for my life. I don't know who the prosecutor is currently in Richland County. It's a, a guy that has a, a lot of experience. He contacted me via Facebook and I said, well, I said, let me ask you something. If my father was to be released, would he be able to travel? Because I was always under the impression that when you're on parole, released, you can't just travel about willy nilly. And I said, would he, would there be a possibility that he could, you know, he could travel? And he said, oh, well, depends on the, the conditions of his release, but he wouldn't be relegated to stay in the state of Ohio. And I said, really? Yeah. yeah, he could have yeah. shown up at my door, and to yeah. know that he's still that angry with me is. Uh, oh, I'm sure he is. He sure is. Yeah, there's no telling. I he doesn't. He has some family that he could probably contact. Uh, maybe even his brother. You know, he he would probably like to come and see you. I'm sure he would. I wouldn't trust him. You guys could go to the beach and hold hands and skip. Sure. Sure. Doesn't that sound fun? Dave, thanks so much for for being on the program. My pleasure. And uh, we will bring you back, of course, because I love talking to you anyways. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe I'll come after this second COVID shot and I'll be back in Ohio maybe within a month and we'll sit. I'll well, do that. Yeah. Do that. And you can Glad to see you. Go kick my butt at golf again. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. no. We'll, we'll play just miniature golf or something. <laughs> <laughs> it has been my pleasure to speak to possibly one of the greatest heroes in my life, David Messmore. I'm Collier Landry. And I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. For more information, please visit movingpastmurder.com or mpmpodcast.com.
The film, A Murder in Mansfield, is available on Investigation Discovery, Hulu, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment.